Welcome to the Books on Air podcast. I'm Suzanne Harris, and my listeners always get the secret story behind every book. Now, I have to tell you, I've started my podcast that way for a long time, and it's always my pleasure to be able to talk to whoever the author is that I'm being able to speak with, but the the gentleman I'm going to introduce you to today has just made such an impression upon me, and his book, I could wax poetic about his book. I made some assumptions when I first looked at the book and the title. I'm going to introduce you to Dr. Barry Blackwell, and he prefers that I call him Barry, and he's going to talk about his autobiography, Bits and Pieces, A Shrunken Life. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Barry Blackwell. He was born British, and he grew up in India. He was educated in boarding schools at Queen's College, Cambridge University, and at Guy's Hospital. He trained in psychiatry at the renowned Maudsley Hospital and he obtained a doctoral degree in pharmacology from Cambridge. He worked as a family practitioner. He was director of psychotropic drug research for a pharmaceutical company, chairman of psychiatry at two different universities. His academic credentials include professor of psychiatry, medicine, pharmacology, and behavioral medicine. He's written over 200 articles and editorials in leading scientific journals, including The Lancet. And he's the author of several books. When he retired, he studied religion and philosophy in a Catholic seminary. He also engaged in several charitable ventures before returning to work as the only psychiatrist in a women's prison. Barry, I just am so pleased to talk to you. And how a poet came out of this background is absolutely stunning for me. I just can't wait for you to tell your story. Welcome to Books on Air. It's such a pleasure to have you. Thank you very much. That's a very nice introduction. Thank you. I did my homework. <laughs> and you're just so interesting. You know, I'll con- I have a confession, and I don't normally say things like this to authors. I'm I'm very honest about what I feel about someone's work. I always admire people's work, and I don't have usually any solid opinions because a person's work is a person's work. And I've been trying not to be flowery-languaged as I describe your work, but there's a luscious, delicious quality about your prose that absolutely reaches up to the reader and starts to tug at the reader gently and pulls the reader right in, and there's a tiny little splash as you feel yourself fall into the book. What made you, after this professional career in psychiatry, decide to write your autobiography? (laughs) Well, I grew up enjoying writing. You have to remember that I'm English. And and in the English educational system, there's no multiple choice questions. (laughs) Everything you have to do is write essays. (laughs) And so uh, that was a skill that um, came naturally to me, I think. But you have the soul of a poet. And that soul, yeah, 
don't you? That that did not break through until late in midlife. What made you break out and become that poet? What happened? Um, a, a couple. Uh, well, um, one answer to that would be psychological, and the other would be literary and pragmatic. The, uh, the psychological explanation would be medical school is really tough. Um, it's a, a, a ritual, a rite of passage, and it's it really depends on on tamping down your emotions in order to deal with all the bitter aspects of of medicine and, and and how you can save lives. And that didn't begin to peep through until uh, late in midlife. And late in the, when I moved to Milwaukee in 1980. Um, I decided I was going to go to the university's uh, classes run for people like me. And I met a poet there named Jim Hazard, who uh, I attended his classes, and he and his wife was a poet as well. And I was tutored by both of them in writing poetry. But um, I think that, the, of course, I have strong feelings about the kind of poetry my my poetry really believes in rhyme, rhythm, uh, alliteration, assonance, metaphor. It's it's very it's very Shakespearean in its structure, and I hate modern poetry in America, which is what I call um, crossword puzzle poetry. Uh, it appeals to the brain and not the, the emotions. And any magazine you go to now in America that has American poetry in it has to have a poet attached to it to explain to you what it means. Nobody should be asked to understand, to, to have poetry explained to them. It speaks to the heart and to the brain, both of which are electrical organs and both of which resonate to all of those things that I mentioned before that are part of Shakespearean poetry. Your prose also is poetic. When I read, the component of my muse surfaced in late midlife, age augurs ill for a bard. First (laughs) poem penned when I was going on 50. What? Age augurs ill for a bard i went yes i mean i found myself now i'm a former english teacher but i found myself seeing myself sitting in a large chair by a fire with your book in my lap and as i read that book i would go oh I love this, taking notes. I also wrote down, Apollo, god of poetry, was father to Escalapius, god of healing. I mean, those are just two examples of your prose. It has this wonderful quality. I'm struggling for adjectives. I'm struggling for words to describe it because... I reacted viscerally and psychologically to your prose as well as your poetry. Now, you use a lot of haikus, and they're sprinkled all through the book. Tell me about the fascination with the haiku form. 
<laughs> well, first, first of all, um, I, w- I won't say I'd corrupted haiku, but I've certainly done something interesting to it. You know, as you know, it's Japanese. It goes back a long way in history, but it's been adopted now by every other country, and it's a bit like <laughs> a bit like uh, foods. Uh, the local country. Uh, uh, deals with it in its own way, and I've dealt with it in a Shakespearean way. In other words, I, I don't know if the Japanese can rhyme, but my haikus often rhyme, uh, as well as having the sort of si- the the five seven five syllable format. And I think that adds actually to the appeal of the haiku. Oh, I do too. Can you give me an example or two? <laughs> Have I put you on the spot? <laughs> Uh, well, yeah, you have, but I could probably, uh, let's see. Um, here's, one, here's a haiku that, that talks about what it's like to live in an aging community. Uh, and the haiku is called Closer to Thee. Our tower in the sky is where old folks can gather together to die. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Now, the book, you used a a quote in there. Let me find it. I have it right here. You used a quote from Mark Twain talking about autobiography. And when I saw, oh, I had to, I had to jump right on this. Finally, in Florence in 1904, I hit upon the right way to do an autobiography. Start it at no particular time in your life. Wander at your free will all over your life. Talk only about the thing which interests you for the moment. Drop it the moment interest threatens to pale. And turn your talk upon the new and more interesting thing that has intruded itself into your mind meantime. That's Mark Twain, cited by Mark Powers in A Life of Mark Twain. Yeah, I read that, and then you said that that's how you thought you'd write your autobiography, only a little more organized. And so you've chosen a very different format for this autobiography. Tell me about that format. Well, it's called the bits and pieces, and and the the pieces you could say they are major themes running through the life. Um, in, in, in analogy, you might think that they're uh, chapters. But I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, the pharmaceutical industry, medical education, patient compliance, uh, a piece about the bread and butter of psychiatry, um, a piece about spiritual pilgrimage. But the bits, the bits are all... Smaller, much much smaller pieces. They're, 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 you know, sometimes they're poems, sometimes they're uh, little essays, uh, sometimes they're uh, pieces of medical literature that I've selected that are, are, are good for sort of lay readers to to be able to understand. That, that, that's 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 the and that's the way it got put together. Did you- I, I think it's unique. I don't know if anybody else has ever done that. Oh, I had the same reaction. I thought it was quite unique. And how did you write this? Did you write this stream of consciousness? Did you just write it straight through? Did you write it in pieces and then select the pieces and put them into categories? How did you How did you put the book together? <laughs> well, I had uh, some very good help, which is acknowledged in the front of the book. Um, 
but um, and it took about I think three or four years to complete. Um, but mostly, I, I would I would identify the theme, the piece, and then put the bits together and put you know assemble them to fit into the piece. It's like. As I read it, it felt stream of consciousness. I felt like I was almost looking over your shoulder as you wrote this, simply because your voice in my head um, read the prose as I as I read through it. So I almost had that stream of consciousness feel. And you quote so many different. I, as an English teacher, I sat there and went, "Wow." because you quote so many different authors, artists, people in the book and bring it right around to whatever the topic is that you're discussing. Did you have those bits and pieces already in your head? Did you do research? How did you, I mean, I'm just overwhelmed by the amount of literary information that you also present in the book. Sometimes I think that's a bit overwhelming. <laughs> I thought it was wonderful. I don't mean to gush. I mean, I know I am. I'm, I apologize for sounding like this. But it's just so much fun for someone like me to read what you have written. I, what I want our listeners to understand is how rich this book is. This is not... This is not an autobiography that reads like, and when I was 14, I hit my first home run in baseball. This is not how this reads. This is rich. There's so many thought-provoking things there. For someone like me, I mean, I was just having a great time reading the book. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I'm laughing because it reminds me, I'll, I'll read you another haiku it comes right in the front of the book, and it says, By mine, <laughs> authors who write books feel the need to scratch an itch. Readers can decline. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. One story that you shared in there that there may be people in our listening audience who would appreciate it. How, there are so many people who will say to anyone, Oh, I'd love to write a book, or I'm going to write a book. Now, I've written books. I've written probably four or five. Nothing anybody right. would read, particularly. Um, one, you know, a couple have been published by small publishers. Uh, I've written for newspapers. I've written for magazines. I'm a writer, but I'm a very small-time, very, um, just a small writer. But I get it about writing. Your story about the class that you went to, and when you were going to read your story at the poetry night is great. Would you tell that story? This is called The Writer Bit. And uh, that refers to the fact that it was actually, I, I was going to the University of, of um, uh, Milwaukee, um, part of the state of Wisconsin's university system to do these classes. And w w when I, when I wrote this, I, tr I wanted to get it published in that they just started a new magazine that was called the writer bit. 
And they wouldn't take it because they couldn't believe that anybody my age was a student. <laughs> so I, I had to get a letter from the from professor who'd been teaching me. And th then when they saw that, then they agreed that I could, they'd like me to read this part. They would publish it, but they would like me to read it to this poetry class. So this is, uh, this is the story. I'm struggling at the edges of the literary world, wondering if I belong there and trying to infiltrate. But I've forgotten how to behave as a beginner. A good place to start seemed to be the Student Writing Association. They sent back my first short stories because I wasn't a full-time student, but they softened up after I attended some workshops. I'd given scientific talks to large audiences, but this felt different. When I presented my own research, it's pasteurized, sanctified by scientific etiquette, and stripped of me. Reading a story to strangers would be a different kind of encounter, risky and maybe more rewarding. But not too dangerous, I hoped. The poets that I'd met so far were sometimes angry at the world, but they were always kind to each other. Like nudists in a colony, they'd learned how to admire one another without becoming overly aroused. <laughs> Between the afternoon workshop and the evening reading, I returned to the hospital to attend a special session of the executive committee convened to consider the appeal of a physician who was denied his privileges. Now, that meeting went on a long time, and I was very worried that I was going to be late for the poetry. I put my two dollars, when, when I entered the, the, the um, university lounge, I put my two dollars at the door and signed the list of poets waiting to present. There were already 11 names ahead of mine, although only a few people were seated in the darkened room. It was hardly time to begin. Obviously, the organizers had front-loaded the list with their own names and poems. Feeling surreptitious, I chose a solitary seat and slid inconspicuously into its contours. The last time I visited a university bar with my son's girlfriend, we overheard someone ask, who's the old fart with the good-looking broad? The stage stayed empty as students slowly filtered in. The bar hadn't been stopped, and it took 50 minutes to find the beer. The band began to play cool jazz. Uh, at around nine, the first poet stepped on the stage, giggling nervously. She picked up speed and confidence fast. One poem, then another second, then another. After about 20, she ran dry and left to a flutter of applause. It made me wonder if I'd be brave enough to read a poem as well as the story. Time wasn't rationed and the audience was kind. Three or four more poets in assorted sizes, sexes, and shapes came and went. My doubts began to germinate. Anger, bawdy humor, and revolution were the themes. Crooked stanzas, daring line breaks, and stark metaphors were the medium. I began to feel old in art and body past my prime and bedtime. If I could leave and not look as if I was escaping, I would. Instead, I bolstered myself with beer and waited. Past 10 o'clock, the poets took a break, and the band played again. Half an hour later, they joined in, and the poems were set to music. Then there were more pure poets. 
I lost count and began to wonder if they'd forgotten me and my short story. It was almost 11.30 and the audience was drifting away. The band were packing up their instruments. The organizers chatted cozily in a corner and only a few listening couples were left. The stranger sitting next to me leaned across to ask the title of my story so he could introduce me next. The last poet was almost done. He was a Native American wearing a headband and had a homespun talent that would be a hard act to follow. And nobody had read a story, and I wondered if anybody wanted to hear one. The poet was working his cadences to a climax when my student sponsor put his hands on my shoulders and whispered softly in my ear, Security says we must shut it down. I'm sorry, we don't have time for your story. Fine, I said, making it sound as if I was mature enough not to mind. Nobody knew me well enough to say goodbye, so I left the coffee shop and slunk past the night owls and the drunks back to the parking lot. I climbed up into my van, put it in gear, and backed into a concrete pillar with a scrunch of metal on stone and a tinkle of shattered glass. Too dejected to examine in the damage, I drove home to a dark house where everyone was already asleep. The mail on the kitchen table included the course catalogue I had requested from the university two months earlier. Too tired to read it, I crept upstairs and into bed. I wasn't ready to laugh yet, and I didn't want to wake anyone. Next morning, I went outside to assess the damage to the van and came back in to read the catalogue. The dent would cost about as much to repair as a three-credit course in poetic form. It's expensive to get an education these days. <laughs> I love it. How many poets, how many short story writers, how many novelists that may be listening to us have ever gotten rejection letters? When I read, <laughs> yes, when I read that, every rejection letter I had ever received surfaced into my head, yeah. and I chuckled and I chuckled. Barry, you have a very, very unique talent, and I'm so glad that I sort of tricked you into sharing that part with us and to listen to you read the story, I think makes it so much more powerful. Our listeners are probably saying to themselves, where can we find the book? Let me tell them. The book is available on Amazon. Now, let me give you some uh, titles and let me do a little bit of spelling so that you can find it. If you've never purchased a book from Amazon, all you do is go to the website and you'll see a very long search box. The title of Barry's book is Bits and Pieces, P-I-E-C-E-S, colon, A Shrunken Life by Barry, B-A-R-R-Y, Blackwell, B-L-A-C-K-W-E-L-L. -L. When you click on that, it will bring the book right up. There's a little description. And in the upper right-hand corner, please do this. In the upper right-hand corner are the words, Look Inside. Click on Look Inside. You will see a complete listing of the table of contents. Just keep looking through. Find where the writing begins. 
Start to read the book. I promise you will not be able to stop. It's just a terrific excerpt, and it gives you this feeling for what I'm talking about, about Barry's prose. It's just extraordinary, and you will enjoy yourself, and you will enjoy the read. If there's anyone who listens to our pod, my podcast regularly, they know that I always like for the author to have the last word about their book because I think it's so important. It's your work, and this is a particularly close-to-your-heart kind of work because it's an autobiography. When right. the listeners do purchase a copy of the book and they sit down, they won't read this book cover to cover in one sitting. It's a long book. There's a lot of, there's a lot to think about. There's a lot to just splash around in. Lots of ideas to make your brain work. What do you want them as the reader when they finish the book, close that back cover for the last time? What do you want them to really take away? Okay. Here is the last haiku in the book. It's called Afterthought. When reading is done, this book's covers will be shut, but thinking goes on. I love it. And you've got another haiku in there about, I think it's at the very front of the book on the front page. It's the dedication. That's it. And the haiku says it's called The Last Word. Read between the lines. Perhaps you'll catch a glimpse of what remains behind. I love it. Barry Blackwell, you have made such an impression on me, and I know you've made such an impression on our listeners. It has been delightful, my absolute pleasure, and just extraordinary to be able to talk to you. Thank you so much for being our guest today on Books on Air. Well, thank you for dealing with my nervousness. (laughs) (laughs) I hope you're calm now. (laughs) Yes, I'm a lot calmer than I was when I started. (laughs) Remember, you can find a copy of Bits and Pieces, A Shrunken Life by Barry Blackwell on Amazon. You've been listening to the Books on Air podcast brought to you on webtalkradio.net. By the way, you can also hear this podcast on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts. I'm Suzanne Harris, and I hope you'll join us for the next Books on Air podcast, because remember, you absolutely never know who's going to be here, and you never know what we're going to talk about. Thank you so very much for listening.